This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Self Inquiry A Guided Meditation. Recorded March 24, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Self Inquiry is one of the most fundamental. Uh, mystical practices there is, especially for Jananis. And if you've been around here for a while, you know Janani is a Sanskrit term, meaning those who follow the path or the approach of truth, investigating truth, as opposed to bhaktis who follow a path of devotion. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they all go to the same place. But this is the premier Janana practice, if you like. <coughs> and I know that a lot of you have practiced this before. But if you are a serious Janani, you practice this over and over again until you have a direct realization (coughs) of the truth. You don't just settle for a little practice and, oh, I kind of get the taste of this practice. What's next on the menu? Uh, If you're a Janani, you don't, if you're not a Janani and you're a Bhakti, you still have to do some (coughs) self-inquiry, but you don't have to do it as a a rigorous practice the way we're going to present it this morning. So, what is the truth that we are trying to realize here. And let's listen to the mystics and let me give you some uh, sample passages. This is from the great uh, Hindu Shankara, who is really the founder of the Advaita Janana school in in, uh, Hinduism. (coughs) He says, the appearance of an individual self is caused by the delusion of our understanding and has no reality. By its very nature, this appearance is unreal. When our delusion has been removed, it ceases to exist. Now here's a Buddhist, Lama Yeshe, Tibetan Buddhist. We and all other phenomena, without exception, are empty of even the smallest atom of self-existence. Here's Chuang Tzu, a great uh, Taoist. I say the perfect man has no self. The holy man has no merit. The sage has no fame. To him there is neither north or south. In utter freedom he dissolves himself in the four directions and drowns himself in the unfathomable. Here's a Hasidic master. Uh, The Hasids were uh, a great stream of Jewish mysticism. Menachem Nahum. How can any finite vessel hope to contain the endless God? Therefore, See yourself as nothing. Only one who is nothing can contain the fullness of the presence. Here's Catherine of Siena, great Christian mystic. In self-knowledge thou wilt humble thyself, seeing that in thyself thou dost not even exist. And here's the great Sufi Ibn Arabi. The Sufis are the mystics of Islam. Know that you are an imagination as is all that you regard as other than yourself, an imagination. So I just read you testimony of mystics from the six great traditions. Taoist, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Muslim, Christian. And they're all saying the same thing, aren't they? This is why I say that if you had to sum up all the teachings of all the mystics of all times and places in one word, that word would be selflessness. Selflessness. That is really the heart and core of what a mystical path is about. Discovering this 
for yourself. And that's a paradox. And whenever we talk, we're going to end up in paradox. Now, it's interesting because a lot of people uh, don't like this teaching. And I hear all the time people saying, well, you know, there's really nothing wrong with the self. It has its good points. Yeah, it causes problems. But uh, on and on and on. But from a mystic's point of view, it's not whether the self is good or bad. It's not like the self is a naughty little thing that we have to get rid of. The mystics are saying it does not exist. Now, what they do say is, though, we do actually have an experience of self. But this experience is based on some sort of misperception. A cognitive error that we chronically make. Or a delusion, as Shankar calls it. And that delusion of self is bad, quote unquote, but only in the sense that it causes suffering. That as long as we have this experience of self, we are bound to have suffering. So what the mystics are saying is the end of suffering is simply to realize that this self that we spend our whole lives trying to enhance or protect or defend, that we're terrified of losing in death and so forth, doesn't really exist. It ain't there. That all this effort is futile. And it is that effort that constantly puts us in conflict with each other and with the world and the cosmos and so forth, and that is what causes our suffering. So it's not a question of the self being good or bad. With mystics, it's just saying it just isn't there. It doesn't exist. Now, a lot of people, when they hear this teaching then, when they really get it, it sounds incredible. I mean, it just sounds unbelievable. I mean, from, you know, when as far back as you can remember, you have an experience of being some self, some separate self isolated from the rest of the world, from other people, uh, rocks, the trees, the houses, the sky, the stars. So the mystics say, okay, we're not asking you to believe us. And mystics do write long philosophical treaties trying to persuade the intellect that this might be true. But that really isn't the fundamental point. It's not to be persuaded in a philosophical or intellectual way. The mystics have a challenge. You believe there is a self. Go find it. Conduct an inquiry. See if you can empirically find something that you can identify as yourself. So I thought that's what we would try to do this morning. And as I said, this is a practice that, uh, uh, for most people anyway, it probably will not produce any profound insight the first time you do it. But I would like to walk you through how the practice works. If it appeals to you, then it is a practice you can then do on your own and continue to do until you do get some insight, do get some satisfaction on the answer. So, first thing we have to do is find out who we actually think we are. So we can then go investigate those things. Now, it is interesting that this differs from uh, people from different cultures, quite a bit actually. Uh, for instance, I was reading about the um, Lakota Native Americans and their fundamental idea of the self is two kinds of souls would be a loose translation in our language. And that they explain why white people are crazy because white people are missing one of those souls. They lost one of those souls. But even uh, within a culture, people have quite different uh, things that they identify as themselves. So let's see if we can get a little bit of consensus here, since we are in a group, because really the point is to find out what, 
who you think you are, and then go investigate that, but let's see if we have some common things that we all think we are. So I'm just going to throw this out for a response here. Who do you think you are? Yes? Uh, I seem to have uh, more sorrow as I connect more with everything instead of the opposite. It's like as I feel more connected with everything in the universe and everything that's alive, everything that's... So we want to know now who is that I that yes. feels the sorrow. So who do you think that I is? A component of it. Yeah, well, I think it's a, a construct that I find useful. But a thought. A thought. Okay, okay. good. Thoughts. A lot of people identify with their thoughts. Yes. I'm this body. The body. I'm the body. Who relates to that? How many people think they are their body? <laughs> I not only think I'm the body, I think I'm female. A female body, yeah. okay. Human beings. And not only a female body, but probably an American female body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, we can, yes, you can get into that, but let's, let's pick body. We can't all relate to female body here. Only about half of them can relate to it. But, but body's good. So, a body. Uh, you know, this is not a question of what you just think intellectually. We're trying to find out your experience. So those of you who didn't raise their hands, I guess you don't mind losing your body. I mean, it wouldn't bother you, right? Because it doesn't belong to you. Yes? A consciousness that's connected to the body, to my body? Very good. A consciousness. Uh, it, would you describe that as like a spirit or a soul or what? Some sort of. I can't tell that, but I can tell that there's a con at least it seems to me. And I know okay. you're saying I'm wrong, but it seems to me there's a consciousness <laughs> in my body. Okay, a consciousness. That's good. Right. Yes. I think on my experiences. Uh, well, what is that? Your experiences, Some memories. <laughs> my past experiences. Memories. Memories. Yeah. I'm, I'm Let's put that memories. under thought. Yeah. Thought. Memories. Plans for the future. Im self images. My personality, which uh, is sort of a, a way of behaving in certain patterns under certain circumstances, that sort of includes an extension of what Bruno said about the past reifies that. But there's that well, that also might include emotions, right? Yeah. yeah. Patterns of emotions. Yeah. So you're a certain pattern of emotions. Yeah. Good. Let's put emotions there. Everybody uh, has emotions, I think, here. Yes? Um, a relational being. Someone who relates in, in this way and this way. Okay, but we're looking at who is the being that's doing the relating? The being who relates? Yes, but who's the being? We're trying to get at the being. Well, that would be my question. <laughs> well, who, or that's your question. Who is that being? Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to try to discover this morning. Yeah, it seems to me that the I, as I identify myself, is um, a necessary construct that is developed to interact with others and to defend oneself against intrusion. And even though it's an imaginary construct, it's an absolutely necessary one for functioning. Uh, that may be, but we want to then know who is being defended against intrusion. Who has to have this construct to defend themselves against the intrusion? I mean, if the I is just a construct, then if that is all it is, then there's no one there to defend or be defended. So the construct, several people mentioned that, but that's, that is a thought, the thought I. Oh my gosh, I'm going to uh, die in a, in a uh, car wreck. I better turn the steering wheel and avoid the, the oncoming car that swerved into my life. But that's a thought. 
Well, you know, mystics aren't saying these thoughts don't arise or emotions don't arise or something like a body. We're going to assume that doesn't arise. They're just saying, they're saying, well, is there some self that is having these experiences, these thoughts, th this body? Yes? Well, I mean, experiences. You know, I will have a different experience in any given moment than the person probably sitting next to me. So I don't know how to define that, but it's not just a thought or an emotion. It's an actual conglomeration that somehow has been right. experienced. This is what we're trying to get at. Now, listen to the assumptions that are already in your response here. Right. I am having an experience. Right. Who is the I that has this experience? It's a conglomeration of all of the above, I think. Well, it, yes, it could be. And then there's also the assumption, I'm having a different experience than the person sitting next to me. The assumption is that there's some difference between you and the person sitting next to you. Right. So there's some I over there, and there's some I over here. Right. Well, this is what we want to investigate. I mean, I'm not saying that, that uh, you know, you people are stupid or something. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is the common experience of delusion, just what you're expressing. But this is the point. We want to investigate this deepest question. Whenever we speak, when we use our language, when we say, you know, oh, I have a stomachache. Well, who's the I that has that stomachache? I'm in love. Well, who's the I that's in love? I'm relating to other people. Who's the I that's doing this? Yes, Vip has it. One I haven't heard yet is imagination, the, this ability to have creative plans or envision things. or you know, Right, thoughts of the future, yeah. envisioning that. Okay, so all that's related, thoughts or memories, uh, planning, uh, images, uh, self-image you might have, for instance, of yourself, you think of yourself, oh, gee, I look good this morning, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I look terrible, I bags in my eyes. Well, we're going to investigate this. I have one more question. Does anybody think they are some subtle spirit or soul or ego or something? Yes, one, two, other, three other people yeah. there. Okay, we're going to investigate. What? Metaphysical soul inhabiting a physical. Good. We're going to investigate that too. Okay. Was there one more? Yeah. Well, I guess I get to this place of going, but, 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 but in my mind. Because I guess what it feels like to me is, all of the things that have been said, you know, emotions, thoughts, projections, everything, though experience, you know, whose stomach hurts, all, all of that are the things that differentiate one from the other, because other than all those things, then you have life force, which is where there is no boundaries. So all of those things create the self-perceived I. In well, my thought form. That's a good uh, theoretical conclusion. But now we're going to make an empirical <laughs> investigation to see if it's true. That's all. Okay. You know, this is like um, in the Middle Ages, the uh, European establishment had this worldview based, uh, based on uh, Aristotle. And they just simply believed it because Aristotle wrote it. And part of it in this worldview, the uh, moon and the planets and so forth were seen as pure crystalline, you know, spheres. And when Galileo came along and he got a hold of a telescope and he looked at the moon and he saw these craters and mountains on the moon and stuff like that. And he said, well, it's not true. And he started writing about this. And the establishment learned people, they said, oh, that can't be true because we, that's not what Aristotle said. And he said, well, why don't you look through my telescope and see? And they refused to look. 
this is why we call this the Center for Sacred Sciences, and this is why we make a parallel between mysticism and science. Mystics say, let's go look. So, I'm going to sit back down here, and I'm going to guide you through this this morning. <coughs> And we're going to do this in a kind of meditative state, not some deep trance, but I'm going to ring the gong and I'm going to first lead you in a few moments of trying to calm and clear the mind. And then I'm going to uh, ask you questions and point you to look at certain things. I'm not going to be telling you the answer. You're supposed to have your own insight, your own experience. So, I'm going to ring the gong once to let us know we're beginning, and then I'll ring the gong twice at the very end. So, here we go. Now, for this meditation, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. You can do this with your eyes open, but it's easier to get started with your eyes closed. And just for a few moments, I'm going to ask you to concentrate your attention on your breath or on a mantra if you have one, just to sort of settle the mind to clear it of preconceptions and be ready to conduct this empirical, immediate, direct, experiential inquiry. Let's begin with thought. Are you your thoughts? If you are, which thoughts? Are you your memories? Let's inquire into this. First, Remember as vividly as possible some scene from your childhood. Now let that scene, that memory, 
dissolve. And remember something you did yesterday. Now let that memory dissolve. And recall your name as vividly as possible. And then let the memory of your name dissolve. Now notice that these memories are impermanent. They come and they go. But do you, the observer of these memories, come and go? If not, how can you be the memories? Are you thoughts or images about the future? Let's inquire into this. Think about what you plan to do tonight. Now let that thought dissolve. Think about your plans for next summer. Let that thought dissolve. Think about something, anything that you would like to do. Now let that thought dissolve. Now notice that thoughts about the future are impermanent. They come and go. But do you, the observer of these thoughts, come and go? If not, how can you be any of these thoughts about the future?
Now let's spend just a few moments observing the random thoughts that our minds generate. Not trying to control them, not trying to think of anything particular, just watching the thinking mind as it goes about its business. Notice that all thoughts are impermanent. They come and they go. But are you the observer of these thoughts coming and going? If not, how can you be any of these thoughts that come and go? Now let's make an inquiry into our emotions. Are you your emotions? Let's test this. Recall some situation as vividly as possible that made you sad. Focus the attention on the emotion of sadness itself. Now let the memory of that situation, along with the sadness, dissolve. Recall some situation that made you angry. Don't be afraid to feel that anger. Focus attention on the anger. 
Now let the memory of that situation that made you angry, as well as the anger itself, dissolve. <clears throat> now recall some situation which made you glad. And focus the attention on the emotion itself, the joy, the warmth, the sweetness, whatever it may be. Now let the memory of that situation, which aroused your joy or gladness, dissolve along with the joy and the gladness itself. Notice that all emotions are impermanent. They come and they go. But ask yourself, do you, the observer, the experiencer of these emotions, come and go? If not, how can you be emotions? Many people are firmly convinced that they are their bodies. So let's make an inquiry into this. First of all, which body are you? The body you had when you were two years old? The body you had when you were 10 years old? 20 years old? 40 years old, if you've reached there, 60 years old, if you've reached there, 
80 years old if you've reached there or more. Scientists tell us that every seven years, all the cells in our body are completely replaced. But let's not just rely on what the scientists say. Let's make an inquiry into this thing we call a body. Maybe you are this present body. But how do you know about this present body? One way is because you can see it. So I'm going to ask you to open your eyes and just look at whatever part of your body is easy to observe. Now notice carefully, this is a visual impression. Something appearing in your visual field of awareness. Now close your eyes and notice that that visual impression is gone. It was impermanent. Listen to any sounds that may be emanating from your body. A rumbling stomach. A wheezing in the chest. A sniffling in the nose. Notice that all these sounds are impermanent. They come and they go. If there's any taste or smell arising in awareness that you associate with your body, notice that. But also notice the tastes and smells aren't permanent. They come and they go. Most convincingly, we sense our bodies through sensation. There seems to be a solid sensory phenomena sitting there like a lump of clay. So let's investigate this in more detail. So begin by focusing your attention on your head, the sensations in the area of your head. Focus on your forehead, 
your cheeks, your neck. Look very closely at these sensations. How they vibrate. Very rapidly, but coming and going nonetheless. Now move your attention down to your shoulders and your chest area. Become aware of the sensations there. The gross sensations of breathing, chest rising and falling. the subtler sensations of tingling and tensions. Now focus your attention on your arms, down to your hands and your fingers. And notice the sensations there. rapidly pulsating. Focus your attention on your stomach in your pelvic area. Now focus your attention into your legs, your knees, calves, ankle and feet. Look at the sensations very carefully, very closely.
Notice that all these sensations come and go. Sometimes extremely rapidly. Sometimes they'll hang around for a while. Pressure, an ache, a tension. But they don't last forever. Like the sight of the body, like the sounds of the body, the tastes and smells, they're all impermanent. They're all coming and going. Now ask yourself, can you find a body apart from these sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and sensations. Perhaps you have an idea that there is a body there causing these things, but do you have any direct experience other than the sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and sensations? Perhaps the body is just a name, a convenient label for this set of impermanent sensations, sights, sounds, tastes, and smells that are constantly arising and constantly passing. Now ask yourself, do you, the observer of these impermanent sensations, sights, sounds, tastes, and smells, called a body, come and go? If not, how can you be this set of impermanent phenomena called a body that constantly comes and goes? Many people identify themselves 
very strongly as an agent of self-will or volition. The one inside this body that decides what to do and then moves the body to do it. The willer or the doer. To see if there is a willer or a doer, we'll perform a little experiment. I'll give you a series of commands, simple bodily commands, and I want you to exercise your self-will by choosing to obey or not to obey each command. And I want you to observe and see if you can find a self that is doing the choosing, that is doing the obeying or the not obeying. So here we go. The first command is raise your right hand. The second command is lower your right hand. The third command is raise your left hand. The fourth command is lower your left hand. The fifth command is clap your hands. Did you find any self making these choices? So far, every aspect of the self that most people think they are, bodily sensations, thoughts, emotions, volitions, have proved to be impermanent, phenomena that come and go. But you the observer of these phenomena, do you come and go? If not, how can you be these phenomena? Now, so far in these instructions, we have assumed that there is an observer of these phenomena. Perhaps some sort of spirit or soul or ego. 
Well, let's look and see if we can find an observer of these phenomena. Now, a word of caution. Don't settle for a theoretical answer of the form, well, there must be. Look, rely on your own direct, immediate experience. See if you can find the observer, a soul, spirit, or ego. So let's run through this again quickly, but now we are not paying attention to the various phenomena. We're trying to see if there is some one or thing or what observing. So let's just spend a few moments watching body sensations. Just observing the body sensations. And then we can make an inquiry. We can ask, to whom are these sensations occurring? Now let's observe our emotions. Try to think of any little incident that produces any kind of emotion. And ask to whom is this emotion occurring? Now I'm going to give you one simple command, and again, you exercise your free will by deciding whether to obey it or not. And see if you can find who is observing this process. Wiggle your right big toe.
Now, perhaps some thoughts have occurred to you about this observer. Perhaps you are absolutely convinced you know this observer. But ask yourself, to whom are these thoughts occurring? If you think you have found the observer, watch the observer and ask yourself, what attributes does this observer have? What color is it? What size is it? How much does it weigh? Perhaps it has some very subtle attributes. If you can detect some attribute of this observer, then ask yourself, who is observing the attributes? Now, finally, throughout this inquiry, ask yourself, has consciousness been continuously present? Has awareness been continually present? Perhaps what you are is this continuously present consciousness or awareness. So let's ask an interesting question here. Can consciousness become conscious of itself? Or can awareness become aware of itself? Let's try to pay attention to consciousness or awareness as it is revealed in the space between these phenomena that are constantly arising and passing away. And let's 
begin with a very precise thought and watch how it arises and passes away and see if we can become aware of the space, the pure space of consciousness awareness between the thought. Keeping in line with our inquiry, ask yourself this thought. Who am I? Generate this thought vividly and then allow it to dissolve as it will without a trace just for a moment, not following up with another thought. Just become aware of that space of awareness between the thoughts. You repeat this exercise of generating this thought on your own several times. Who am I? Now relax the mind and allow random thoughts to arise and pass. And shift the focus of attention from the foreground of the thoughts arising to the background of the space of consciousness or awareness out of which they arise and into which they disappear. Whatever other phenomena arise, sights, sounds, sensations, tastes or smells, emotions, feelings, keep your attention on the background, on that space of consciousness awareness through which all these phenomena pass as they come and they go.
Now one final question. Ask yourself, is this space of awareness, of consciousness itself, a thing? Does it have any shape or size or form? Does it have any color? or texture? Does it have any weight? Does it have any boundaries or limits? Or is this space of consciousness, awareness, a no thing, the groundless ground of everything, absolutely everything that arises and passes away? Perhaps what the mystics say is true. You are the space of consciousness awareness. So what was the result of your inquiry? <clears throat> yes. I find that once I have an idea in my mind, I don't get rid of it. It keeps coming back, or whether there have been millions of thoughts in my mind over the years, I can't uh, erase them. I don't want to erase them. Well, this isn't a question of erasing them, it's a question of observing. So, uh, when you have a thought, it's an interesting thing to ask yourself, 
and the thought repeats, is that the same thought that you had before, or is this just another version of that thought? It might be brand new. Yeah. It's like a sound. We usually uh, understand that, for instance, I clap my hands. That's one sound. Then I clap my hands again. That's another sound. So we can recognize each sound is unique. That is a sound. That one went. Here's another sound. Our thoughts, the way to investigate is to ask yourself, if you had the same thought that you had a moment ago, is it the same or is it a similar thought? Just like a clapping of the hand is similar. But each one is unique. Each one arises and passes away. Will never arise again, exactly. And when it passes away, it's gone forever. One of the interesting things about directly starting to experience this business of impermanence is you start to realize the freshness of each moment. Each moment is entirely unique. It may seem like past moments, but if we really are attentive, we see, as Ibn Arabi says, the great Sufi, each moment is a divine self-disclosure. And God never repeats himself. Why? Why bother? You've done it once. So it's like the unfolding of a dance or the unfolding of a piece of music. So you play a theme again in a piece of music. The theme comes back, but it's a new variation. And we play it again, but it's, each one's a new variation. These are uh, branches of this inquiry that you can make. And you yourself will know how to make the branches because what comes to mind, then you go investigate. The great trick in this inquiry, unlike, unlike scientific inquiries, is that we are not aiming for a new theory about who we are or what the world is. We're aiming for a direct realization. And so if you're a dedicated Janani, you don't just do this practice you know, once uh, and think you know the practice. You can make it a daily practice as a formal practice, 20 minutes, half an hour of the day. You sit down and you investigate. You might spend the whole week just investigating thought, watching thought, and another week watching emotion, another week watching sensation. And this is a very good practice to do on retreat if you really want to get into it intensely, whether you go on a formal retreat with other people or whether you just yourself go out to the coast for a weekend or a week and get a little motel room and sit there and investigate. Conduct this inquiry. Conduct this inquiry. The more you conduct it, the subtler it gets. For instance, this body scanning thing. This is a, a big part of a Buddhist practice called Vipassana. And we just go around assuming there's a solid body. But if you do this practice for 10 days, by the end of 10 days, you realize it's just sensation. It's sensation in this emptiness. Constantly arise. It will transform your experience of the world. It's also a practice you can do informally throughout the day. Just notice, especially when your mind is getting wrapped up in some drama that it's created. You look, thought, oh, to whom are these thoughts occurring? And if you watch the last thought, whatever it was, it'll take you right back to that space. You just allow it to dissolve without a trace. And there you are in that space. It's very important to do this practice 
uh, when you find yourself making decisions. That's the hardest thing to do uh, when you're sitting quietly because not many opportunities for decisions arise. But it's a wonderful practice to do when you go to a restaurant, for instance. And there you are with the menu. And everybody's waiting for you to decide. Oh, your mind can't decide. Zorba called the grocer's mind, going back and forth. That's a wonderful opportunity to do this practice. Is there anybody in there deciding? Who can't decide? Look right at it. And watch what happens when the decision is finally made. Is there someone deciding? Or is it just like the scale's going and boom, they suddenly go chonk and a decision is made. You investigate this. Don't take my word for it. See, even if you believe what I'm saying, in fact, you're in more danger if you believe me. You should have some doubt about this. Because if you believe me, then you'll say, oh, I know the teaching of selflessness. But it'll be theoretical knowledge. It won't be experiential direct realization. Direct realization is what frees us from the delusion of self. And that's what frees us from self. And let me just say one final thing about this. You also have to do this practice as any practice in conjunction with other practices. This might be your primary practice of your body, but we still need to practice precepts. We still need to, to foster love and compassion. We still need to do concentration practices. You can see actually why in this practice your mind begins to wander if you haven't developed through concentration practice a mind that can ignore phenomena and can direct attention to what it wants to look at. We need these other practices because not only do we have this belief that we are some separate self, but we have developed a, a tremendously strong pattern of conditioned behavior based on it. So even when we get direct insights here or there, that conditioning rolls over. So you're on retreat, you get a nice vivid insight into the emptiness of self and you come back to your family and your workplace and the world and everything like that, television, and it just starts all up again. So it's through, particularly through practicing precepts, which interrupt that conditioning through self-restraint and then fostering and cultivating love and compassion, which is selfless, that we start to then dissolve that conditioning as well. So those are extremely important things. But this is an extremely powerful practice, especially if you have that sort of Janana mind, that mind that wants to know the truth, that will not settle for anything less, and, will, and is not uh, impressed by what people around you think and what you read in books, that wants to investigate for yourself, wants to know for yourself. This was uh, the approach of my teacher, Dr. Wolf, who was an extreme Janani, and he once told me when he set out, he said, I want to know the truth, and I didn't care whether the truth revealed that the world was a wonderful place or a terrible place. That wasn't important to me. If the truth turned out to be, this is awful, this is direct, this is hopeless, at least I wanted to know that. I did not want to live a lie. And that's the motivation of a Johnny. And that's the motivation you bring to this practice. What is the truth of my experience? So, it's a sample of a kind of practice, and there are other sorts of practices. Maybe we'll uh, do some other practices here occasionally on a Sunday, 
and build up a set of tapes that people can go off and, uh, and use to help them. I hope it was helpful to you. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And uh, you're welcome to check out the library and have some tea and chat and talk some more until we see you again. Peace to you all.